Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... It's not only about building new schools with buildings and walls, but new systems, and it will be challenging for Ukrainian cities. We're in the Swiss Alps this week as nearly 3,000 politicians, city leaders, business owners and activists descended into the town of Davos for this year's World Economic Forum. The conversations happening here will shape the global outlook for the next 12 months. And cities have a big role to play when it comes to helping define the way we live in the future. We'll investigate the new trends in urban living, explore why it's important to bring mayors together under one roof and hear how to create more sustainable and resilient cities across Africa too. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes, so let me hand you over to Monocle's Carlos Rabello, who's in Davos. This is The Urbanist. The World Economic Forum's annual meeting here in Davos is a beast of its own, with key topics on the agenda spanning from investing in energy infrastructure to cybersecurity and even what makes good leadership. It might not be apparent just how many of the conversations revert back to urban living and building better cities. While these might not be discussions of their own, but there are a few every day on urbanism, it's clear that everything discussed here will impact how we live, regardless of geographical location or economic background. To hear more about these key urban trends coming out of WEF this year, I caught up with Jeff Merritt, who's the head of urban transformation here at WEF. What I love about the annual meeting here in Davos right, is you're having people come from around the world and you're taking them out of their comfort zone. They're having to trek through the snow with big jackets and boots on. And again, we connect on the, on the frustrations on that human level of like, it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire, it doesn't matter if you're a head of state or maybe you're just an executive assistant, but at the end of the day, the experience is the same among all of us. And it is in many ways very much that sort of urban experience, right? We're stuck in traffic and we're frustrated, right? But that's the beauty of this. And then it enables us to have a really deep conversation about these pressing issues. We're not paying attention to our emails and our cell phones. Well, let's then focus on the trends for the next 12 months. I'm curious to hear your take. Of course, a lot of themes crossing the agenda here over the entire week. But with your urbanism hat on, what are some of the things that you are seeing being discussed and can foresee coming up in the next 12 months or so? Well, I think, one, the the energy and the mood on the ground is very different now. On one hand, it's the fact that a lot of us haven't actually met face-to-face in three years since the last time we had one of these in January. But then also, I think that there's a... There's a really personal connection to these big challenges that we're facing. Let me just take me, for example. I live in the in the Bay Area in San Francisco, right? Last year, I had my son that I had to pick up from preschool because there was a wildfire nearby and they were evacuating. And then right now, in the last couple of weeks, we had a mass flooding, right? Regardless of where you live in the world, 
where you work, what type of you know, organization entity. We're all faced with these common challenges and I think that we're fed up with just talking about these things, that there's a real focus now on implementation. If we're going to talk about implementation, whether we're talking about net zero goals, we're talking about affordability crisis, cities are where that's happening. And what I'm happy to see here right now is that transition happening, not just a macro level discussion, but okay, if we're going to see first movers in industry and government on some of these big challenges, well, where is that actually happening? Are we actually building out the ecosystems? Are we thinking about the market that needs to develop, right? And so right now, we're seeing actually increasingly individuals sort of raising their hands and saying, I'm ready to lead on action here and the tactical steps we need to do to move some of these ideas into implementation. It reminds me of a conversation that was spilling out onto the Congress Hall yesterday, which was on climate change. People were saying, well, it's good that the conversation has moved, if you're talking about climate change, to include food security, for example. Exactly what you were describing, that you can no longer take these broader subjects without tackling the root causes or the what could be the solution. That's one example. But what are others that you could perhaps tell our listeners of, you know, actual action (laughs) taking place. Well, let me just piggyback on that element. So right now, like we have a discussion tomorrow that's looking at the urban resource nexus. So the challenges related to food, energy, and water, right? And the fact that you can't address a strategy on one without the other, you have to think holistically. And we have, for example, the head of the city of Riyadh there. We have minister from South Korea there and really talking tactically about what are the strategies that need to be in place, how we're going to put that into action. And then we have private sector leaders who are stepping up and saying, okay, we're going to be on the ground with you. And one of the things I'm really happy about here is there's a focus on long-term planning. Give you an example. We had a, a launch on Monday of this week with the president of Switzerland. 31 countries, as well as private sector leaders from real estate and construction, all rallying around a concept of they call in German Balkatur, right? It literally stands for building culture. But the idea here is that we can't, in the sense of urgency and need, we can't just throw buildings down and kind of it's not about efficiency we need to be thinking about the long-term strategy here and how to build better how to build quality so that we're not in a situation a few years from now where we're having to essentially start over when you look at all these things we've been talking about and all the other key discussion topics there's a lot of it that just relates to city living and that more and more people will be living in cities over the next few decades the majority of the global population how crucial it is for, let's say, city leaders, activists, to pay attention to the conversations happening here when it comes to urban living? Yeah, I mean, I think that city leaders have to capitalize on what is said here, right? That in many ways, we cannot talk about global issues without breaking it down into the individual sort of local strategies. So it's worthless in some ways to talk about a global net zero strategy. We have to think about what is the individual sort of city level strategies we need to put in place. And we need to hold each one of these private sector entities and counterparts accountable for their piece of that. Because it's not something that either government should be leading alone or can lead alone, that we really have to understand understand that a city is just a collection of parts, and a lot of those parts are really owned and led by the private sector, and obviously civil society, academia, and other experts have a critical role to play in this as well. And Jeff, just finally, what would make for you personally this a successful event? What are you hoping that you can bring home with you back to the U.S.? 
Well, so one of the things that the World Economic Forum has done in recent years that I think really exemplifies what this organization is all about is something called the First Movers Coalition. Essentially, we've brought together industry competitors and said, okay, there's some tough decisions you have to make in the years ahead. And if you move as a pack, you can be the sort of champions here, the champions of change, as opposed to, in some ways, just rip off the band-aid, right? And let's just make these changes that we have to make for our future. And now what I'm looking at here is saying, what are the first mover cities, right? What are the locations in the world that are actually going to be leading these transformational efforts? Who's going to show the path forward for affordable housing, right? Who's going to show the path forward for a nature-positive cities? And so that is really what I'm pushing on here, is that out of this, what I want to see is... A number of specific sites around the world, a diverse set of cities that are leading on different areas, and then what we're doing is we're really focusing the private sector energy in those areas, so then we have a path forward, we have a model in some ways that we can rally the rest of the world around. Well, picking up on that theme of food security, it's been quite interesting to observe just how the narrative has changed over the past few years. In this edition of WEF, there's no doubt that if we're talking about climate change, we need to also talk about where our food comes from. This is something that has also been spotted by the urban epidemiologist Tallulah Oni. I asked her what she thought about this change. It's not just talking about food, but the fact that we're talking about food systems and the need for a systems transformation. And secondly, that we're talking about nutrition. So we're not just talking about undernourishment. We're talking about the spectrum of malnutrition, including micronutrient deficiency and overnutrition, so overweight, obesity. So really, we've been talking about this triple burden of malnutrition that the world is facing. So it's been really quite encouraging to hear about some of the initiatives that are being taken, both from the public and private sector, start thinking about reformulating products, start thinking about the importance of legislation to importance of, from the financing perspective, ensuring that incentives or investments are actually aligned, right? It shouldn't be possible to go business as usual going forward. It shouldn't be possible to have a huge spectrum of unhealthy foods portfolios without kind of financial consequence because we've been externalizing that cost. One of the facts that we mentioned was that, you know, the cost of of malnutrition is double uh, in terms of health, in terms of planetary cost is much more than the cost of actually doing something about it. So for those reasons, I'm optimistic. Now, of course, as an urban epidemiologist, I'm quite curious to get your take into, maybe for listeners who might not be entirely aware, just how vital, you know, ensuring there are those food systems, that all these mechanisms are in place, how vital that is for city living, for urban life as we know it, and as we know it will grow according to projections. Yes, so absolutely critical, and particularly in urban settings, because, well, firstly, because people are increasingly living there, but we see the rise in more unhealthy food systems coming through into the urban context. So when we talk about food systems, it's important to recognize we're talking about the spectrum, right, from food production to food retail to consumer behavior to individual preferences. So often when people think about food in cities, think about, oh, healthy lifestyle, healthy choice. But the choice architecture matters, right? You can't make healthy choices, quote-unquote, 
if you don't have easy access. So when we talk about food systems, we're talking about availability of healthy foods. We're talking about accessibility. So it's easily accessible, cognizant of when people work. It's no good having a healthy food by my home that is open from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. when I'm not there, right? That is affordable because that's a really important factor, particularly as we're seeing a rise in obesity in lower income areas, in higher deprivation areas worldwide. So, and something that's yeah. only getting worse with the cost of living crisis. Absolutely. So it becomes what you can afford is what you eat. And you can understand why. So we have to move beyond preaching to people to say, oh, you have to eat this or that and the other, to saying, well, how can we make the healthy choice the easy choice and actually be contextually relevant? So, for example, where the majority of cities are growing in the global south have very young populations, the burden of obesity is rising really rapidly, but it's coming from very low levels. So what we should be focusing on is primary prevention, right? So this is not inevitable. How do we ensure that from an early age, from the school environments in cities, from the exposure that children have on their way to school, they're having access to healthy foods, from the transport infrastructure, right? Because uh, obesity is food, but it's also physical activity. How are we kind of applying all the lessons that we learned from the, the marketing and the increasing demand of unhealthy foods actually to healthy choices? That is really the essence of what needs to happen. One thing that has also been uh, visible here throughout the week is also this emphasis when it comes to cities of bringing back nature, implementing nature-based solutions in cities. Now, this is also tied up with food. You were talking there about, you know, changing the way people relate to the food they consume with children. Is this a way of having this implementation and this focus on nature as well, of ensuring, for example, people maybe in lower income housing or in areas where there's more deprivation, economical deprivation, for example, you have your allotment, you learn how to grow your own food. That is something that over the years has been talked about, but actually hasn't really taken off as it should in order to eliminate some of these inequalities or inequity. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's complicated, right? So allotments could work in some places. In other places, if you don't address time poverty and urban sprawl and the time it takes you to earn a living, allotments don't become feasible, right? So it's, it really is tailoring it to the context. The point of the nature is a really important point, so thank you for raising that, because it links to climate, right? One of the reasons why food is so critical is that it's not just human medicine, it's planetary health medicine, right? Because what is a critical pathway, uh, if we're thinking about the health impacts of climate mitigation actions, food and agriculture is really high up on there. So it's important that we're thinking about integrated action on health and climate. Nature-based solutions is one way of thinking about that, right? So how can we ensure through nature-based solutions we're looking at increasing carbon capture and reducing greenhouse gases, we're increasing access to green spaces, which is good for physical and mental well-being, but we're also using the nature to improve access to healthy foods and bringing growing into cities. So, for example, it might be through the institutions, it might be in schools, it might be in healthcare settings. So if we're not thinking about it, we're not innovating in that space. So we have to start having the conversation, which is why it's so great to be having it here. One other person that is here in Davos to talk about these nature-based solutions that Tulula refer there is Carlo Ratti, who's the director of the Sensible City Laboratory at the MIT. Carlo's work looks at the intersection between nature and technology and how, by deploying the two together, we can build better and more livable cities. 
There's something interesting. When you look at the natural and the artificial world, there's two ways to bring them more together. And I think we need to bring them closer together. And, you know, one way is actually using nature itself, you know, trees, greening, and so on in, in the built environment. But the other thing is also using artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence is a way to lend to buildings the ability to respond in a dynamic way, like living beings. So this is kind of double convergence. And yes, you know, just to tell you, for instance, a project we're particularly excited about is a project that won the Helsinki Energy Challenge in Helsinki just a couple of years ago about decarbonizing the city, decarbonizing the capital. And in that case, for instance, is about both a technological solution, but also a solution that uses nature. You know, it's a number of floating islands, an archipelago of floating islands, where we can store the heat to run the district heating system of the city. Today, the district heating system is run with coal power plants that are going to be decommissioned quite soon. And so the idea that basically we can use renewable, we can store the heat, again, in these floating islands, we can run it to heat the city, the district heating system. But at the same time, these become also, you know, new new biodomes for people in Helsinki and tourists alike to enjoy. So again, you know, there's many projects I could mention, but always bringing these two components, there's a technological component and there's also a natural component, both of them coming together. Now, a city like Helsinki, for example, it's quite interesting because it's a city hall where the mayor has made a commitment to achieve carbon neutrality. I believe it's by 2030, they've reduced the deadline. It was used to be 2035 and they've gone even more ambitious. But not all cities are like that. Are you still finding that you need to do a lot of convincing when you are approached or have these sort of conversations or has the discourse changed somehow? Well, look, you know, Helsinki, like in many other cities, is part of the C40 League. You know, C40 are almost 100 cities, some of the largest cities on the planet. They all committed to become zero carbon by the end of the 2040s, some of them even earlier, as you mentioned. The thing we're seeing, so I don't think there's a lot of convincing to be made for the goals, but I think there's still quite a bit of convincing in order to have to get there. You know, if you think about this, most of the mayors will not be there in 2040, will not be mayors anymore in 2040, so we are seeing cities uh, still need to realize how they're going to take action, and, uh, and action in some cases a bit slow. But I would say the convincing for reaching the goals that is established, that is there, and we're talking about C40 cities, but also all the other cities globally. There's a rise of these new purpose-built cities with a lot of technology involved, and we don't need to go into the names if you don't want to, but... I am curious about your take on that. When we are building a city, you know, from the ground up that has all these futuristic views and all these ideas of how people might live within it, how do we keep some of the traditional ways we yeah. live in urbanization while incorporating said technology? Yeah, I know it's a very good question. And, you know, if you look at it, let's look back at the 20th century. If you look at 20th century, cities built from scratch. Think about Brasilia in Brazil, think about Chandigarh in India, and then quite a few others. Often, they resulted a bit in disaster. It took a long time before they started working. And the key thing missing has been often feedback loops. You know, nature works through feedback loops. You try something, you get feedback. You try something, you make mistakes, and you correct it. You constantly need to test things and see what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes, you know, architects think, you know, they got the solution, it's a final solution, it's fixed. But again, they might have missed a few things. You know, Brasilia is beautiful. We actually... Our design office is involved in one of the largest extensions to the original Brasilia master plan. If you look at the city, it's beautiful when you look at it from the plane. But when you're there, you realize so many things that are missing. How neighborhoods are just with one function at a time, and so they become totally empty during parts of the day. And the way to avoid it, and I think that would be for me the suggestion to all of the people embarking today, new cities projects, is really create a system that's open where it can constantly feed back. And so architects will certainly make mistakes, and uh, you need to have a way to correct them. 
But what works in one part of the world might not work in another. The divide in urbanization from region to region is still evident, more so when the attention turns to the African continent. This was part of the reason that led Diane Binder to found Regionopolis, an international initiative catalyzing solutions for regenerative cities across Africa. Her work looks at how to create more sustainable and resilient cities in the region, less reactive and always with a long-term vision in mind. Basically, I worked for over 10 years in developing big public-private partnerships for urban infrastructure, more specifically in the water sector and the waste management sector. And I've come to realize working in Africa that if you want a city to be truly sustainable, what you need to do is actually to start by supporting local initiatives that can be supported and scaled up. That's truly sustainable. And that's how it developed the idea of Regionopolis, where we actually identify nature-positive solutions to urban development. And we support SMEs and entrepreneurs uh, having the solutions to bring them towards maturity and scale. And uh, just to understand a bit of the scale of Regionopolis, how many countries are you operating in at the moment for those local solutions? Just to get an idea of the numbers. We started the initiative quite recently, but we are launching activities in uh, countries like Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Morocco and Ethiopia. And we have a network of local partners to help source the initiatives. And then we uh, also work with partners on the ground to bring those initiatives towards maturity. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that we often see, particularly across urban areas, across the African continent, a lot of initiatives that are reactive. And what I think is interesting here is this idea of having a long-term vision where actually is about creating these solutions that will last, that have a bigger vision of what the urban environment could look like. Is that a fair assessment of the work you're trying to do? No, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I really consider Africa as being a laboratory for innovation. So that will inspire not only you know, cities on the continent, but also the, the rest of the world. The urban equation in Africa is very interesting because the population will double to 2.5 billion within the next 20 years or so, and 80% of the growth will be in cities. So that means that today cities are the hope or the deadlock of the continent. And local initiatives exist so that cities can actually have a very positive impact, not only on climate, on access to opportunities to job to health services, but on well-being of population. Because at the end of the day, a city is the way we choose to live together. And this is very important to think about cities in Africa right from the start, also because some of the cities that will exist 20 years from now are not necessarily built today. So there is a, an opportunity to make it right from the start. And of course, when thinking about making cities right from the start and having that long-term urban vision, issues such as climate change comes to mind, sustainability. So in practice, how does that translate in some of the solutions on the ground? Absolutely. I've developed this uh, concept of regenerative cities, which is very much what I'm pushing. And my definition of a regenerative cities is standing on two pillars. One is the impact a city has on the natural ecosystems that surround the cities and that the population depends for their own survival. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. And the second pillar is about the social contract, and it's about inclusion and making sure that everyone has access to opportunities and to well-being, as I was mentioning earlier. This is why we're supporting mostly nature-based solutions for urban development and decentralized solutions. So, for example, in the water sector, it could be solutions that would uh, make potable water from uh, humidity in the atmosphere. 
in waste management, it could be uh, some social enterprises collecting waste or uh, doing microbiomethanization of waste. So there are a number of solutions that just exist and needs to be scaled. When you arrive at the locations and are working with the local leaders, local activists, other organizations, do you find support or do you find that there's a bit of convincing that needs to be done on your behalf for them to allow you to and the network to you know, fully deliver as you just described? Well, I'll give you a very concrete example. A couple of years ago, we had a very innovative approach uh, for sourcing projects, which was very much bottom-up and collaborative. What I mean by that is that we did this in, in Cote d'Ivoire and in Senegal. So we organized workshops with all stakeholders of urban development, so local governments, international corporate organizations, local SMEs, local uh, startups, civil movements, NGOs, and we tried to understand exactly what were the most important topics to solve for the cities. And then bringing all these stakeholders together, we'd be like, okay, now we're in the same room. What can we collectively do to sort out this challenge? And this was very powerful, and a few initiatives have emerged out of this workshop that we did in collaboration with Make Sense. And I very much think that this is a way to ensure ownership of the projects and to ensure inclusion and accountability of all stakeholders. But if there's one country where cities have faced the biggest challenge since the last edition of WEF, that nation is, of course, Ukraine. The ongoing war has created unprecedented challenges for Ukrainian cities and their residents, with many saying that carrying on is the best act of defiance of them all. These are, of course, challenging times for local leaders and mayors too, whose job massively changed in the past 12 months, with many being forced to adapt to a new set of skills and reality. Irina Ozimok is the founder of the International Mayor Summit, a platform that was created to connect local governments with industry leaders and their counterparts. She started by telling me how the platform was also forced to adapt and what that has done for the power of the mayor in Ukraine. The interesting fact that the, basically the format changed because of the war, because initially in Ukraine we had the association of mayors, they were working together, sometimes more, sometimes less, so we wanted to ensure for them the more international exposure, but also ensure that they can meet people from business and civil society, because honestly speaking, sometimes business, they have more money for R&D, they have a solution, so it's good that they cooperate. We were also trying trying to bring uh, foreign mayors as examples, you know, what uh, are innovations or what are partnerships about and how to change the life of cities for better. And what the war changed, that basically for the first time, probably in Ukraine's history, it's not a formal partnership or what we call sister cities, you know, but it's really practical cooperation and partnership between them. And that's really great. We see that Osaka becomes the partner city for uh, Dnipro, uh, recently hit again and again. And then Mykolaiv cooperates with uh, Danish cities, for instance. And uh, Zhitomer has partnership with Spanish cities. You know, So that's really great that it moved to really a very practical dimension, unfortunately under the conditions of the war. One thing that I also picked up with the transformation because of the war 
is kind of the importance and the roles that mayors can play at this challenging time. The mayors really have played an important part here in delivering that message as well. Has that changed the way, I guess, they approach you or the way they ask for these interactions with businesses, as you were describing? I do believe that uh, mayors, like foreign mayors, they become ambassadors of Ukraine. And the role of city is growing. And we saw that, for instance, in a a small uh, city community, which is Chortkiv in western Ukraine, they started to have a new partnership with Bezia, which is somewhere where Khan is. Yes, no one knew about this city before in Chortkiv. But then, apparently, the mayor of the city had good political connections and he could speak to the presidency of the country of France basically about Ukraine and the need to support. So I do believe, first of all, foreign mayors become ambassadors of Ukraine and this voice for the government to speak for us. Second, they speak to their communities and they also persuade or uh, give the information so the community is helping because people-to-people contact were very important. And they also reach us as a platform and they ask which needs there are for Ukrainian cities and that's also very important because some cannot finance military uh, provisions but they can uh, help to rebuild schools and that's very important. Last year already there was this conversation about rebuilding infrastructure and Ukraine has been quite remarkable at that. The pace that railway, bridges, roads get rebuilt to try to ensure life continues and goods can move and military can move and that the country, despite everything, doesn't get disconnected. Is that felt back home, that steadfast rapidness to which the rebuilding of infrastructure is happening? Rebuilding is important and some might say that it's too early to speak about this. No, because people continue living there in Mykolaiv, in Kherson, in small cities you've heard about, uh, you know, that were never known uh, before. People are in a hurry to live there, so they do everything, and then I think it will be a big movement for citizens' participation in rebuilding city. We saw it already in Bucha and Erpin when people went out on the streets, they were clearing streets, there were raves, you know, just to help uh, people, so all creative ways. But reconstruction is um, a very expensive thing, you know, and and again, it's not only about building new schools with buildings and walls, but new systems. And lots of people, millions of people are currently abroad. You know, and to make them come back, again, to rebuild systems, not only like buildings, it will be challenging for Ukrainian cities. Of course, the first demand will be to ensure safety which we here pray only for the armed forces of Ukraine. So the process will be challenging, but you know the story, you know, when there is a new attack on Ukrainian cities, and like today that we learned about this helicopter, people continue donating, you know, that's a new way to donate more and then helping each other and creating new, maybe temporarily residential areas for people who lost their homes, you know, those are processes that are like really have the light speed, because it cannot be otherwise. Looking at the International Mayor's Summit and the next 12 months, do you have any plans for how it might differ in operation? You said that the war forced the change in how the network operates. Going ahead, do you have any goals that you'd like to achieve? Any projects are on the pipeline? How will the International Summit of Mayors work over the next year? First of all, we didn't have the Mayor Summit as a conference uh, back in uh, 2022, but I really want to have it this year and to have it in Ukraine. We have already enough safe spaces 
like a bomb shelter in Lviv hospital where I come from or the metro station in uh, Kyiv, you know, or many others, you know, because I really think there is a big interest to Ukrainian cities. Mayors are still coming. It's probably not something that is publicized very often for security uh, reasons, but it's important that people, urbanists, again, businesses, uh, creative uh, people, that they come and they help us to rebuild because more internationals are in Ukraine than, again, more safe it will be you know and then this we also have the slogan that we want to rebuild better like build better than it was before yes and then again it's about uh, ecological aspects it's about a uh, green agenda it's about uh, new buildings and uh, appreciation of talents because cities are for people so i do believe that uh, this bigger interest and uh, more travel even in these times will allow us to progress faster you know and to to learn from the best in this world and also to deliver good results for our people as this year's world economic forum wraps up there are a few takeaways ukraine remains at the top of everyone's mind and it was encouraging to see monetary commitments being made not only geared towards defense but also towards the rebuilding of cities The future of urban living permeated most of the conversations and it was refreshing to see cities take more of a center stage here. Yet climate change remains the biggest challenge ahead of us and as the global elite makes its way back home from a snowy Davos, it would be good to see their words turn into action over the next few months. For Monocle in Davos, I'm Carlotta Rubello. Thank you, Carlotta. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist, coming to you from the World Economic Forum in Davos. Now, be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes direct to you every week. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to Monocle magazine too for regular reports on all things urbanism. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Switzerland's own Vendredi sur Mer with L'Armée à Gauche. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Elle fait pleurer les garçons qui s'attendrissent devant elle. Elle fait pleurer les garçons à qui elle ose dire non. Elle fait pleurer les garçons qui lui disent qu'elle est belle. Elle fait pleurer les garçons et elle a bien raison.